I'm Tony Tardio. Hello and welcome to Darren Hinch's That's Life podcast, a podcast where we talk about the big stories of the past, the big stories of today, through the prism of Hinch's six decades in the media. Darren Hinch, welcome again to That's Life. Thanks, mate. I enjoy these. I really do. I was uh, reading with interest about a friend of yours. Now, I'm, I'm casting my memory back to uh, the 80s. 1986 was a specific year. There was a radio war going on in Melbourne. There was a 3AK, which was the Brian White people who'd moved over from 3AW, and then there was the official 3AW, the people who stayed. The war was between you and, well, in a way, George Negus as well, because... He was, he was hired by Kerry Packer, I think, to do the morning program. I remember the first day he was on, he was shit house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, he was nervous. Uh, everything yeah, was I know, I know why. I know why. Because and um, the day before they started that thing, which cost Kerry Packer $60 million uh, and a failure, the day before, Jackie and I, Jackie Weaver and I were in, in Sydney and we went round to George Negus's house with him and Kirsty and and I deliberately uh, drank a lot of wine and Negus drank a lot of wine and I knew that he didn't know how tough radio was or could be. I was on 3OW here. He was about to launch his radio career. He was, he was a star of, uh, of 60 Minutes, etc. And I got him pissed. And uh, so he wakes up on his first day with a hangover. He did. He did. He was doing eight till nine, and his first day was dreadful. He's talking about Russia or China, and, yes. and it was dreadful. And I thought somebody said to me, "Oh no, Jackie said to me, you did it on purpose, didn't you?" And I said, "It's a war, darling. Of course I did." <laughs> uh, and it got to the stage. I think we've talked about this before. Um, uh, Peter Davy was involved at Three AW and I. And we, we organised did a, a, a newspaper campaign in which I had a transistor radio hanging off the Harbour Bridge. And the caption said, if I want to listen to Sydney radio, I'll move to Sydney. Yes. Well, we have talked about that and about, about the Sydney-Melbourne rivalry and how people want radio to be local. They don't want it to come from Sydney if they're well, in Melbourne. We had Don Lane was doing noon till one, I think, and he was saying, hello down there in Melbourne. <laughs> and that went down like a fart in a spacesuit, as they say. <laughs> the, the reason we're talking about all this is because it's come through during uh, the last couple of weeks that George Negus has been put into uh, some sort of um, a village or retirement home or uh, old people's yeah, home or something yeah. uh, because he's uh, suffering from uh, dementia. Did you Severe know this? Dementia. Yeah, severe dementia. In fact, uh, Ray Martin uh, says that he first twigged on this about a year ago when he bumped, m- met up with George and thought, George isn't his normal self. And uh, it turned out that he wasn't, that he had dementia. And it must be very, very serious. I didn't know this until I read it, read it like everybody else did. Uh, and it's so sad because um, he George Negus is one of the best known, was one of the best known journalists Australia has ever had. Um, even Ray Martin says on 60, about, about 60 Minutes that George was the face of 60 Minutes. Ray says he wasn't. Before Yana came along, uh, George was the face of 60 Minutes. Now, originally, the first three people on 60 Minutes were meant to be George Negus, Ray Martin and Darren Hinch. Uh, 
it wasn't. It became Ian Lisley because I turned it down. Uh, I was um, had been hired on a handshake by Three H Roy, five to nine, four in the morning. Uh, <laughs> I love the way you do that. You never <laughs> fail to do that whenever you mention Three H Roy. Yeah. So anyway, and George didn't believe that I'd been approached by by um, Peter Meekin to join Sixty Minutes until months and months later after the show was up and running and whatever. And I said, George, when you joined 60 Minutes, they paid you 700 bucks a week, didn't they? He said, yeah, how do you know? I said, because that's what they offered me. But uh, stupidly, perhaps, I had, a, I had a handshake deal with 3XY and I thought, you don't go back on con- on even verbal contracts. And, uh, and maybe I, I always thought it was a wrong decision on my part. And I loved it when I finally joined Sunday night after three three AW sacked me, and I studied started doing stories on for Sunday night. Flew to New York and London, interviewed people like uh, Yoko Ono, etc. And I loved it. But maybe I wouldn't have if, if I'd gone there. I wouldn't have ever been to three AW. I wouldn't have built my reputation through there. I wouldn't have become a senator. Uh, so maybe it wasn't such a bad decision after all. But. I've got some great Negus stories if you're prepared to hear them because... Well, I am. What, what sort of a bloke uh, was he? My first memory of him was um, not as a journalist. I think he was working with Lionel Murphy, Senator Lionel Murphy, as his press secretary or something. And I forget that. Yeah, he did. Labor had just uh, won the 72 election and there was a raid on ASIO's offices and uh, Negus was in the car reading a newspaper and the media went up to him and sort of asking him what's going on. He was in Lionel Murphy's minister's car. And uh, I remember him sort of being a bit, you know, like uh, didn't give much information out. So that's my first memory of him. He, look, he. this was when, when, they, when Whitlam came into power and uh, they released the conscientious objectors from, uh, from jail because over the Vietnam War. So it was a very emotional time for everybody. Um, I... I, I, I enjoyed George's company, uh, and uh, but he was always George Negus. Um, I remember several things. Lachlan Murdoch um, once told a friend of mine when Lachlan was head of Channel 10, Lachlan said, it's very hard talking to George Negus. He said, because he talks about himself in the third person. <laughs> and and Lachlan found that, that very strange. But two things about George, and George... Um, when he when he had the Negus show on uh, Channel Ten at six thirty at night, uh, that's which did did not work that well. It was, a, it, was it, it was the wrong person, the wrong time slot, and the wrong channel. But um, he he once said to, to a friend to a, a colleague who was his boss said to said, you know, when you have such perspective as I have, that was his opening line about something. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I'll tell you two funny stories. Now, that that sounds a bit egotistical to me, but I guess you've oh, got, yeah, to, you've got to be egotistical to be in that business. I, I, well, you do anyway. You know? I mean, I, I, have a, I have a large ego, and if you're not a narcissist, you probably won't do well in the business. But but there are levels. Uh, I remember once we were talking about money, and I said, I oh, the $700 a week. Uh, but when 60 Minutes was about three years old, and was the hottest show in town. I mean, it definitely was. I mean, I would decide, and, and Jackie and I would decide, do we drive home from the farm and watch 60 Minutes at Home or we watch it here and then drive home? And that was a Sunday night decision because you didn't want to miss 60 Minutes, whatever happened. 
I mean, now, to be sad, I, I couldn't give a damn. But um, that was how we all felt back then about it. Um, anyway, after about three years, George calls up Sam Chisholm, the boss at Channel 9, and, and says, you know, I need some more money. And uh, Sam says, okay, I'll, I'll get on to it. And Sam calls Kerry Packer, calls KP, and says, well, the call's come through we've been expecting. Negus is on the phone. He wants more money. And Kerry says, and George has told me the story himself. Kerry says, okay, tell him to meet me at the so-and-so. It was a hotel in Willoughby where Channel 9 used to drink all the time. And Kerry didn't drink, although he looked like a drinker. Um, so he gets to the pub and George walks to the pub. And uh, Kerry says, well, George, I tell you what, I know what we're here. Tell you do. You write down what you think you want, what you think you're worth on a beer coaster, and I'll write down what I'm prepared to pay you. And in the meantime, I'm going to have a pee. And he walks off to the toilet. Right. <laughs> and George diligently writes down what he thinks they should be paying him. And uh, Kerry comes back from the toilet, picks up George's beer coaster and says, okay, and doesn't show him his own. <laughs> clever he just said yeah okay and we, we will never know whether george would be underpaid hundred thousand dollars a year or five hundred thousand dollars a year the boss just said yeah okay we'll it's do just, that it's just native cunning you can't you can't teach that sort of stuff it's, it's just ingrained in people isn't it that, that yeah I mean, it was so clever just so clever um but my best george story um nigger story he was in london on a job right and he's about an hour out of London. I don't even know what the story was. What the story was, and he sent a car back to the to London to pick up his jacket because he wanted to do a stand up with his jacket over his shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't going to wear it, but he always had the you 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 seen it a thousand times. Yeah, you always <laughs> he crouched down in a war zone or yeah. somewhere, and he'd. He'd have the jacket over the shoulder with his finger in the, the little thing at the top of the jacket. That's it. Yeah, but he sent the car back to get his jacket. You know, Look, I enjoyed George's company. I remember one of the first times I met him, we were arranging to have dinner or something uh, in, in Melbourne. And uh, he said, come up to my room. And I went up to his room and he said, oh, I'm, I'm running a bit late. I've got to finish an intro. And he's sitting there with one of those eight by four legal pads, right? And he's scribbling on it in pencil. And I said, is your typewriter broken? As an old journo, he said, I can't type. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, I was gobsmacked. I'm never a journalist who couldn't type. I mean, I, I'm a, a four-finger touch typist, you know, um, and I couldn't believe it. Uh, but, of course, I forgot. He, was, he started out, like Tony Abbott, as a seminarian. He was studying for the priesthood. Yeah, and he was a teacher too at some stage before yeah, he got into it. Yeah, I think you're right, yeah. Yeah, well, look, I, I remember him, you know, with his cowboy boots and mm. sort of jeans that he had, the the, the moustache. I mean, the moustache never came off. It's probably he's still got it now. Did you ever see him without yeah. a moustache? No, never. It's like I've been really – I've been seen twice in 70 years without a beard, so I can understand why he's doing that. His most famous – 
moment, of course, was when he was interviewing Ma Margaret Thatcher, the Prime Minister. And he said, people in the street I'm talking to say you are this blah, 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 and that and that and that. And Maggie Thatcher jumped on him. He said, name one. <laughs> Which people? Who? Yeah, Where? People. <laughs> name one. Which people? I'm sorry. I'm confused with the thing I used to tell my own mother. Yeah, which people, she said. Uh, my own mother would, I'll be sitting there staring at a piece of pumpkin, which I wouldn't eat as a kid. And she'd say, think of the starving children in Africa. And I said, name one. <laughs> <laughs> smart ass at the age of about 10. <laughs> now, he lived um, for some time in, in Italy. I know he wrote a book about oh, that yeah. time there. Um, did you ever visit him there? Or, and no, no, and no, he, he had a home here in Bellingen in uh, northern New South Wales where he lived. He, he, well. I tell you, he was obsessed with Italy and he did write a book about the time he and Kirsty had there. Uh, he was so passionate about Italy. Um, I only met up with him when I, when I, when I destabilised him, putting it in quotes, uh, the, before his first day on air on 3AK. Uh, that was in Balmain. But then he and Kirsty bought this most amazing property uh, in, the, in the country with, I'm, I've seen pictures of it with beautiful trees and jungle and it was the most amazing house they owned there. And it's just so sad. I mean, because you think, now this is, this is going on a different, same topic but a little different. Um, we think, or I'm, I'm fair, I think misguidedly that if you are reasonably intelligent, and you keep exercising your brain, and you do Wordle every morning as I do, uh, you're not going to get Alzheimer's. You're not going to get dementia because you're still keeping your brain moving. But the fact of the matter is that the smartest person in the world can get demented and can get Alzheimer's, and that's a cruel fact of life. And very sad for the people <coughs> around them because bit by bit, I mean, I remember Hazel Hawke, uh, Ronald Reagan. Once they get these symptoms, you don't see them anymore. I guess it's to protect their dignity because, um, you know, the public doesn't really want to see somebody who they've admired like that in that situation. I'm not interested in seeing a picture of George Negus today. Uh, you're quite right. But it is... It's a terrible, it's the most awful disease. I mean, cancer's terrible, but dementia is terrible because I had a partner whose mother got dementia and had to be put into home care because, because she was turning on the gas without lighting it, you know. Uh, and, but she had had such a loving relationship with her husband for so long, they still held their hands as they were walking down the street after 50 years, right? And... He would go and visit her in the nursing home and she would be sitting there holding hands with a complete stranger. Now, to cope with that as one of the survivors is, is amazing. What I used to tell people, and I wrote about it in my book, Coping, is, is to say you've got to understand they are not the person you married. They are no longer the person you thought they were. They are a different person and you must accept that because otherwise it'll take you down as well. Mm. <clears throat> but to accept that, to get to that point of acceptance, given... Well, can, you, can you imagine it? If you've held your hands with the same woman for 50 years 
and then one day you walk into a nursing home and she's holding hands with somebody else. Yep. You just, it would be almost, you have to be very strong to accept this, this person is ill. This is a sickness. This is not, she wouldn't even remember what she's doing, you know. Tell me about Ray Martin, uh, Darren. You, you've had a pretty, you know, close, you, you go back all the way to yeah, where lovely, you were. Lovely relationship going back back to the 1970s, yeah, yeah. Well, I saw him on a tribute to, um, I think, to Shane Warne. I didn't realise he's gone so grey. <laughs> he's, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's still Ray Martin, and, but unlike that TV show. Still got the same haircut, though, Darren. Oh, yeah. Always, always had that sort of, you know, it's not a wig, but it is his hair, but it it's looks like it could be. What that, that show was called, two things, Ray Martin and I both still have our own hair. In fact, and number two, neither of us diet. I'm getting some grey bits coming in there, but I'm I don't diet, and my hairdresser can 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 uh, can uh, back that up. But um, look, Ray's he's amazing. He's he's still going. He does a, a he does picks picks and chooses what he does now. He does some stuff for for SBS. He does some uh, some stuff for the ABC, and uh, he is one of the, one of the best journo's we have ever had. I mean, he was. Fantastic on Four Corners. He was a great host of A Current Affair uh, and of Midday, which I replaced him on. Um, I, I'm very fond of him. Uh, he's he's never had any scandal attached to his life at all, as, as I recall. And, uh, yeah, he's, he's good value. Still is. Now, when you say he's a great journo, and I recognise that too, you as a person who's been in the media for more than 60 years, what are the qualities you want to see? in somebody you know let's say there's a young journo or young would-be okay, journo journalist, listening now I, I okay you've got to, to be a good journo and a long time journo and i've told this to youngsters when i've given speeches to them you've got to have fire in your belly you've got to believe in what you're doing you've got to believe that there's thomas jefferson who said give me give me a, a government without media or a media without government i'll choose media without government so You've got to be, and you've got to be responsible. I loathe the expression fake news, but if you're wrong, fess up. The editor of the Sydney Morning Herald recently sort of fessed up um, because he called, he insisted on calling the, the lockdown, the trains in Sydney as a strike. Uh, to be honest, when I first heard about it in the morning, I thought it was a strike. It turns out it was not a strike. It was a, it was a lockdown by the government. So, well, I saw some exchanges, uh, text messages and stuff that happened between yeah. the editor and oh, some yeah. of the journos. And the editor and kept insisting it's a it's a strike. It's, a, it's, a strike. it's not a strike. And he insisted, and he's a new editor, and he insisted it is it was a strike. So he's, he's made a sort of convoluted apology to subscribers, which doesn't quite gel because, uh, I mean, I, I'll admit, I thought it was a strike. It turns out it wasn't. He had a duty to change that, his newspaper's attitude or description very quickly, and he didn't. And I think that was a failure. Um, but as, to be, as a young journalist, try and be right. I mean, as I said, I hate fake news. We don't peddle in fake news. I mean, look, the biggest bullshit around at the moment about media, especially in Sydney, is that Peter Costello, the former Liberal treasurer, decides what goes into the Sydney Morning Herald. Now, Channel 9 owns the SMH and owns the Age. That's true. They bought Fairfax. Peter Costello would not have talked 
to a journo at the at the age or the SMH in in Yonks. It doesn't work that way. I mean, he wouldn't have any interest in that. He he, he can't say to if somebody said to me, like when we were on three AW, if if if, if Peter Costello had owned three AW back then, or his company had, and they, and he called me up and said, "You can't do that editorial at four o'clock." I'd say, "Get fucked, or I'm out of here." Yeah, Would you? Uh, of course, of, of of course. But you, you cop us all the time, Tony. People say, "You know, what what are you, who are your who who are your handlers telling you to do now? What to say now?" Which is rubbish. Yeah, yeah it's, rubbish. It's, it's, but it's it's uh, Kevin Rudd is sort of mounting this campaign. I see him on Twitter all the time. He's always he's looking for every little thing that he can ram home what he believed. We're fair enough. Andy Murdoch. Andy Murdoch, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's obviously angry and bitter about what's happened to him and his political career. And uh, he sees that the newspapers and, I guess, Murdoch ganged up on him and uh, that's the reason. They may have ganged hey, up on him. Think Kevin, Kevin, thing Kevin Rudd never mentions is the way he used to hang around the bloody car park at Quebec Street in Sydney, hoping to meet up with Rupert Murdoch. He was, you know, he was desperate to have Murdoch on side, you know, when he was running the first time and then running the second time. Yeah, so, but the truth I, about Kevin Rudd is that he had he been a prime minister that dealt with things and managed things well. Uh, his fate would have been different. But mm. the flaws were in him. Oh, yeah. When you read some of his tantrums, you read about some of his tantrums, you think, holy shamoly. I mean, I didn't see it. I, I thought the Kevin 07 campaign was very clever and it worked. But in the end, it was all about Kev, you know, all about Kevin. And uh, I, um, I, if I'd still been in the Senate, I would have voted against uh, a royal commission into into Murdoch. Uh, if you want to have a royal commission into every media group in the, in the country, that's different. But you don't pick on one because you don't like them anymore. I mean, I think what I think that even um, I think Malcolm Turnbull demeaned himself by locking in with with Rudd on this one. Well, he's he's another one who 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 is angry and bitter about what's happened to him. And, uh, and and seems like he wants to make people pay for it. But, but again, there were flaws in, in him as, as well. Had he not won, or, or had he won by a larger margin than one seat, he would have had political power to do what he wanted to do in the first election that uh, he, he had after he toppled Tony Abbott. But he only won by one seat. There goes his power. And he was a hostage to all of the different forces in the Liberal Party, that's yeah. the reality. Well, I, I, I was I was still a senator when when all that played out with uh, and which with Peter Dutton and finally Morrison uh, getting the prime ministership. There's a new book out which I've just started to read by uh, Annika Smithist about called the the accidental prime minister uh, about Morrison, and um, I had lunch with her actually uh, recently, and I was. Talking about how way back I was still in, in Canberra. I don't know where I, where why it came into my head, but I tweeted forty eight hours before it happened. I said Scott Morris will be the next Prime Minister of Australia. Now I was wrong by twenty within the next twenty four hours. I was wrong by twenty four hours because in the interim, um, Malcolm Turnbull um, demanded the forty three names in writing. Right. Just to stall, stall the attack, 
Um, but I, 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 in my heart, I thought Dutton won't get it, and and and, and since then I, I discovered, uh, and I'm, I'm sure it's been printed elsewhere, that Morrison's people, maybe not Morrison himself, but he must have known, Morrison's people put five votes in favour of Dutton in the first ballot with Malcolm Turnbull. So Malcolm got 48, and I think Dutton got 37, okay? Now, that's enough for a Prime Minister to think, 37 votes against me in my own party, I'm stuffed. So you knew that Turnbull was buggered and wouldn't contest the next one. I know that Dutton was walking around saying, where the hell did they all come from? We only had 32. But Morrison's people put five votes to load Dutton's figure to make Malcolm look worse. And then they, then they convinced Julia, Julia Bishop to run, and she got 12 votes. Uh, and you knew the Bishop votes would go to Morrison. The five Morrison votes would come back to Morrison, and Dutton was stuffed as well. It was a very clever thing. The only thing I don't know whether Morrison was involved. I know his people were. I know Hawke, the new Hawke, not Bob, uh, was involved. Uh, it was a very clever move, and within 48 hours, ScoMo was PM. Yeah, well, to that I'd say, uh, you know, politics is treacherous. You think Malcolm Turnbull's people wouldn't do similar things to that? In the end, it comes down to the numbers. I don't know if I've told you this before, and I apologise if I'm repeating myself. I'm standing again for the Senate this year because I was thrown out, voted out, after three years. I was elected for six years. I have an Australian Electoral Commission award on my on my wall that says one, two, three, four, five, six. In 2016, the sixth number senator was Darren Hinch. But when it's a double dissolution, the constitution doesn't decide who gets six years. It's a vote in the Senate, right? So the government, Labor, Liberals and Labor got together. You have to have a vote on who gets six years and who gets three. Um, and I obviously led the opposition to this because they're going to vote me out. What happened was, and, and I got some crossbenchers voted with me and the Greens voted with me, which is very nice of them, except because it made them look like they were for the small parties, except that just before the vote, um, I was one of the scrutineers and I overheard Richard Di Natale, then leader of the Greens, say to Matthias Cormann, leader of the Liberals, the leader of the government, are you okay? Have you got the numbers? Can I vote with Hinch? <laughs> Which meant we, we want to vote with Hinch to make it look like we're, we're for the small guy, but I want you to make sure you guys win the vote. And so Liberals and Labor had, had joined up. They gave my seat to Scott Ryan, in Victoria, and as a part of the deal, then the Libs backed Labor and gave them um, Lee Rihanna's seat, green seat in New South Wales, to Deb O'Neill, a, a Labor senator. So it was, it was all done, stitched up, good night, nurse, and I was thrown out. Darren, uh, Ukraine, uh, Russia, yep. a nuclear war, uh, nuclear power plants, uh, terrible situation. Well, by the time this goes to where God knows what will happen next. I mean, you probably see have seen the blitzkrieg by Russia in uh, in the Ukraine. I mean, 
already we've seen horrifying stories, civilians being killed, uh, buildings being blown up, hospitals being blown up. And uh, the, the only positive out of all of this is that I've never seen the West so solidified and, and, and Australia is giving uh, weapons and, and, and not only humanitarian aid, but weapons to the Ukraine, to Ukraine. You've seen, when I say unified, you've seen Sweden and Switzerland, which are traditionally neutral, backing Ukraine. You've seen Germany, which since the Second World War have been very careful about what they do with weapons and things, promising weapons to Ukraine. Uh, I find it the most amazing strength and, and solidifying of the West, which is important. But when, when, when Putin suddenly says he's putting his, 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 his nation on nuclear alert, I hope, you pray, that that is just politics and, and swaggering. Because the danger here is that if, if one NATO troop puts a foot in Ukraine, that will give Putin the, the excuse to bomb Poland or other places. Um, obviously, nobody wants World War Three. Nobody well, wants the, the thing is, if all of that happened, there would be no winners. No. Uh, Putin, there's no way he can beat all of Europe in a traditional war. Uh, so does this guy just blow the whole game up, you know, like you're playing chess, you just throw the chessboard off the table, that's it, the game's all over, no one's going to win, uh, it's finished. Uh, well, I raised the question on Twitter the other day, which is dumb, I suppose, um, but ignorant. I said, well, if, say, Putin dropped a bomb, atomic bomb, nuclear weapon, on Ukraine, wouldn't the fallout kill thousands of Russians? Absolutely. I mean, it's like if somebody dropped a bomb on New South Wales, we would die in Melbourne. Isn't that the way that it works? Absolutely. Well, and you don't know where it would, would you know, all of that fallout, it could probably, you know, the winds where, where it was going, it's going to affect the world all over the place. Who knows? I mean, Chernobyl, the, when, when all that happened, I mean, it affected the particular area, but uh, there, were, there were winds that blew across uh, Europe that uh, raised radiation levels all over the place. Yeah, and radiation levels in, 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 in food and God knows what. Now, when, when, when the Russians took over Chernobyl, and then they took over the, the, uh, the Ukraine nuclear institute installation, which caught fire. I mean, that could spread radiation everywhere. It could, radioactive waste could, could kill millions of people. What have you made of the Ukrainian uh, prime minister, uh, the Ukrainian president Zelensky, a former comedian who, uh, you know, he's pretty plucky. He, he's, um, I thought I've been very impressed with the way he's gone about doing what he does. I think he's fantastic. Two things, as I often say, somebody said, oh, Ukraine's got a comedian turned prime minister, turned president. We've got a, pre a prime minister turned comedian. Um, but I was so impressed. I don't even remember her name to my, to my discredit. But his, the president's wife made the most beautiful speech recently. Um, because he, allegedly he survived three assassination attempts. I mean, I would suspect 
that, that Putin had sent assassination squads Absolutely. in there. They, they want to cut them off at the head, absolutely. If he goes, then the whole thing will, will probably crumble. I mean, it'll probably crumble anyway. What if they kill him, Darren? What's the ramifications of that? You know, well, the, I, I, I was... Um, I actually uh, tweeted about this. I was shocked. Um, an American senator, it was Lindsey Graham, I can't remember. He put out a, a tweet. It's an American senator, leader, put out a tweet saying, you know, where's, um, where's, where's Brutus, right, who, who killed Julius Caesar? Where's Brutus? Where's the colonel who, who put a, a bomb under Adolf Hitler's desk in World War II? He was praying for and projecting and suggesting the, the, the assassination of Putin. Now, I put a tweet saying, how would you feel about that if that sort of tweet had gone up from a politician a few days before the death of JFK? I mean, you can't advocate the assassination of a political leader. I mean, I, I despise uh, Putin and what he's doing and the brutality, but once you start advocating the, the murder of a political leader, that could be... I mean, I've argued here when people are carrying awful signs saying, hang Dan Andrews. I mean, vote them out. Well, you can't vote them out in Russia, but I find this so offensive. Well, Russia has a problem. Uh, I mean, there are all these sanctions being imposed, uh, all these oligarchs that have had their possessions and their assets uh, mm -hmm. frozen, uh, and the ruble... Um, by the way, you ever been to Russia? You ever spent a ruble anywhere? I've never, I've never been to Russia. I've always something I really want to do. I would have loved to have gone to St. Petersburg. Um, and the ruble is now less than one cent. Yeah, yeah. So so that's going to impact down the track. <laughs> and, and the oligarchs. I mean, they have their yachts seized. They have their villas seized. They have whatever. I, I'm, I don't know how true this is, but supposedly Putin is worth about 200 or $300 billion dollars. Which is a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, and he's um, it's, stories have been written before about how wealthy he is, and he he hides it. But uh, and the theory, of course, is now that he's bitten off more than he can chew. Uh, the, the Russia is not behind him, but he runs such a um, such a country. It's very hard. I mean, you, you see Russian demonstrators being arrested by the thousand, and you think that ain't going to change. Um, I don't know about his mental or health or condition. He seems, he seems to know what he's doing. Keep in mind, he's the former head of the, what was called the KGB. He's killed people. The man has no empathy or or compassion. It's hard to see how it can end in a good way, um, yeah. because uh, Putin's not going to want to lose. The West certainly can't lose. So how do you reach some sort of solution that works? I don't think you can. Well, they, the other day they had a, um, a ce alleged ceasefire to let civilians move around, and uh, it lasted about two hours. You know, um, I, I, I think I, mean, I'm, I am surprised and thrilled by the international support for Ukraine. Didn't happen for Crimea, did it? You know, but I'm glad to see we're coming around to this and. Uh, but I, I agree with you. I do not see how this ends. I maybe naively think there won't be a nuclear war because it it, it kills t so many people and ruins so many countries. I mean, there's places in Chernobyl you can't even go back to without a nuclear 
blast just for a nuclear fault. So uh, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's an area of the world's been empty for years. Can we do that again? I don't, I don't think so. And I, I don't think, oh, sure, I'll probably regret this, I don't think Putin is that mad. All right? You hope. Well, yeah, yeah, you hope. But he's cornered, and uh, if he's got nothing to lose, you know. Yeah, yeah. Mm. All right, Darren. Isn't it funny? We're talking about nuclear war. The last time we talked about it, it we started about 1962 when we all started to build bomb shelters, you know, and we thought the Cold War ended it all. And people say to me, this is going to be uh, as bad as World War Two," And I say, it'd be worse because it'll, it'll be surely worse. the weapons the weapons in 2022 are far more sophisticated and far more dangerous than the missiles and bombs in, well, they're never missiles, the bombs in, 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 in 1942, 43, 44. Yep, I think the possibility of it getting out of hand and uh, being just uh, terrible are, um, are quite high. Darren Hinch, it's been a pleasure again. We will talk to you next week. Well, Mr. Tadio, you're a food man. I am off to make myself a smoked salmon and onion omelette. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, we, you should tweet a photograph of. By the way, do you like people tweeting, you know, uh, pictures of what they what they've cooked or what they've uh, eaten? You know, that seems it. to I be the it. trend I've nowadays. Done I've done it myself. I love it. You know, I mean, I've actually, I've actually stopped. Though. I'm very sad about it. I've stopped my um, Hinge Facebook page from March the first because with an election coming up. People don't go to your page, they get it in their news feed. And during an election, people see Hinch's pictures of food and flowers and balcony news and trees and think, is he off with the pictures? You know, <laughs> so, so, uh, as of March 1, until because uh, I'm standing again for the Senate, until after the election, I'm gone. If I win or lose, I'll be back uh, on, on Facebook after the May election. So there we go. Well, we'll follow your progress during the campaign. <laughs> hey, and, and on... on on Wordle, I'm a convert to Wordle, I tell you. It's the best game since Scrabble. Well, I know I nothing about it. Next uh, next podcast, I want to talk to you about that because I see you tweeting every day about this oh, Wordle right. and whatever. And I think uh, I actually think Darren has gone a little bit mad. It's a, it's a whole new world. It's the best. We'll do it next time. It's the best new word game since Scrabble. And I wrote two Scrabble books. Um, and I'm, at the moment, I'm running 100%. 18 wins out of 18 days. Yeah, but what do you actually win? Oh, you don't win anything. You win the satisfaction of, of, of beating the people who put a word up and they say, guess what the word is. Right. And you have to do that by, by playing the game. Right. Well, I know. We'll talk, I, about, we'll talk about it next time. It, it, it is confusing. It's weird. But I'm the, the latest and newest and most fanatical wordler. Well, there you go, Mr. Hinch. Uh, you, were, you, you were a bit uh, weird about Twitter. You know, you weren't sure whether you thought it was a good thing or not. But when you finally see something and you see the, the good in it or what it can do, you, you totally embrace it. And this is yeah. another example. It is indeed. Talk soon. Mr. Hinch, have a good week, Charles. Bye, mate.